Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. It is a Monday afternoon or early evening here in Tenerife. We've got blue skies. Yesterday I was out all day riding. This is the island that just keeps on giving for motorbikers. Right, today's episode is proudly sponsored by XL Moto, the one-stop shop for all things motorcycling, whether it's clothing or upgraded parts for your motorbike, servicing parts and everything in between. There are a few things from XL Moto. Well, there's a lot of stuff at XL Moto I like, but I want to specifically mention one product from XL Moto because a company called Ride and Sons, which is I think under the XL Moto umbrella, Ride and Sons, they make an absolutely incredible waxed cotton 1960s style jacket. It's about 265 pounds. It's called the Ride and Sons Arrow Jacket. I showed it on a recent YouTube episode and it is honestly one of my absolute favorite jackets now. I now wear it all the time and it is all day comfort. It's soft. It's soft wax cotton, not that really hard stuff that I sometimes experience, but it's really soft wax cotton. Feels extremely well made and it looks incredible. Got all of the, the protection, the armor, the abrasion protection, although you do actually have to buy the back armor separately. But anyway, I recommend it hugely. That's xlmoto.com you can buy the jacket from. And it is, well, I absolutely love xlmoto and I love, I love, this jacket so go and check them out xlmoto.com right let's get to it i will start today with two bits of news let's start with the news okay here we go just clicking on my phone to open this up and this is from i don't know why does it why is it always the daily express like i don't know why i always start with stories on the daily express it's not that i'm some avid daily express reader it's just these stories for some reason always pop up on my phone i have no idea why and then every so often i click thinking that's interesting and now all i see is daily express articles okay this one from the daily express and i'm quoting here we begin the new zero emission zone in the uk to charge all petrol and diesel cars from next month so the first zero emission zone will be launched in the uk in february as local councils continue the government's push to ban petrol and diesel cars by 2030 it means anyone entering oxford city center that isn't driving an electric vehicle will now be charged for do for doing so the scheme will be launched in two stages from next month and begins with the unveiling of a red zone in the city which will see drivers of petrol and diesel cars hit with a charge welcome to the beginning of the end everyone this isn't just the beginning of the end it's not as simple as that i really think this is now we're coming to potentially the beginning of the end of internal combustion vehicles being allowed to comfortably drive in larger cities i think that's what this is it's happening in london I think, I think it may be happening in Manchester as well. Oxford, of course. I mean, it's really only cyclists that can enjoy getting around Oxford because it's just set up more for cyclists. Uh, and then you've got in England, I'm sure it's the same in other countries, but in England, I don't think it's as much the same in Wales, Scotland and Ireland. But in England, you've got, especially for cities like Oxford, you basically drive up and you park in a big car park and then 
I think it may even be a free bus service. No, you gotta pay, I'm sure you pay. Then you jump in a bus and the bus takes you into the city. They call it park and ride. So I think that could be the future. Ah, maybe it's no bad thing. I don't know. I mean, as long as you can bike in there, it's fine. Maybe it's not a bad thing. I mean, driving in cities in England, specifically England, I'm sure Wales and Scotland are better, but driving in England into the cities is pretty hellish anyway. So, so there we go. Diesel and petrol cars in Oxford. I think this is regardless of how eco-friendly they are. You're going to start getting charged as of now, I think. Right, next article I wanted to hit you with. This is, oh, there you go. There's a bit of diversity. The Guardian. Car makers report booming UK sales of electric vehicles. In fact, I think it was my dad that sent me this over. This is really interesting. In... Okay, let me read it to you. Booming electric car sales were a bright spot in a tough car market last year amid disruption to global supply chains hitting manufacturers, according to Fresh Data. In its annual sales snapshot from 2021, the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders said carmakers sold 190,000 battery electric cars across the country last year, accounting for 11.6% of total sales. 11.6% of total sales in the UK were electric vehicles. That is absolutely huge. And in fact, I may even be able to go one further because I think my brother-in-law sent something over saying it was a colossal in December specifically. Yeah, here we go. In December in the UK, I think this is from the FT. More electric cars were registered in 2021 than the entire preceding five years, according to the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders. While one in four new cars sold in the UK in December were battery vehicles. 25% of all vehicles sold in the UK were battery vehicles. I don't know if it means pure electric or hybrid, but anyway... That's a huge percentage. That really is probably probably the first time now uh, I've seen a really chunky percentage come along in the UK. I mean, usually you get, you know, five, less than 5% even, you know, the, the numbers are minimal. Now, these are big numbers. Two things I think with this. One, this is brilliant. Great, we're moving towards a greener future. Secondly, I think we are one million miles away in the UK as it stands with our electrification, one million miles away. Now the fact that we're finally buying electric vehicles in big numbers, well, I hope the government is actually going to do something about getting these electric chargers out in some kind of substantial manner and not just, oh, there you go, there's a, there's a broken charger outside Budgeons, that should be enough for the the town of 220,000 people and oh there you go we've just fitted two outside Tesco one of them already works and apparently that's going to be enough for southeast London I hope they actually do something proper about it because now the government have to step up because people are now properly buying electric vehicles so now the government have to step up it's always that chicken and egg situation what what comes first in the electrification of uh, in my example, the UK, what happens first? Do you make all of the charging network at gigantic cost to the government 
and hope that they come, the electric drivers, car and motorcycle owners come? Or do you, what I honestly think is happening here, do you wait for everyone to buy electric vehicles and then you start properly building electric network? I really do think that the government here is basically just waiting for a gigantic amount of people to buy electric vehicles before they actually start the catch-up process because I think they're already going to be in the catch-up process with the amount of new vehicles. If 190,000 battery vehicles were sold in the UK last year, it's going to be very, very soon before this is completely unsustainable, the, the way that our network is. And we're probably okay in the UK, but I would class our, our electric network, considering the claims that the government's making, as completely substandard. And in, I borderline say it's a disgrace, actually, after having the Harley Livewire for a few days, a complete disgrace. So let's see what actually happens with that rant over. Motor Guzzi. Sorry, no, rant not over, actually. Motor Guzzi. I have never, ever had, never had, so much negative feedback towards one motorcycle brand. When I posted the Motor Guzzi V7 video and I said, why aren't they more popular? I was blown away by how many people have have something to say about Motor Guzzi. Even the Italians, actually. I had one Italian contact me and say, Freddie, you're, you're absolutely right. I went into Motor Guzzi in Italy and I asked if I could test out. I asked if I could test out a Motor Guzzi. Motor Guzzi's reply was, yes, but you can only have it for five minutes. I don't, it's just amazing. It's amazing. I, it is almost universally atrocious atrocious feedback for motor goodsies aftercare after sales customer service absolutely atrocious the worst i have ever ever heard about in fact funnily enough when i do the surveys of what motorcycle brands are good and i ask bikers by far the lowest that i've done so far is ducati and I'm going to do a Moto Guzzi one very soon. And I think Moto Guzzi will be much worse than Ducati. What is it about Italian motorcycles? Why don't they understand that you need some level of customer service or some level of reliability? Because Ducati scored extremely badly when I did the survey of owners, what they thought of the bike. Do the, Basically, the questions are, would you class your bike as reliable? Would you buy another one? Ducati's done atrociously, and there were over 500 responses. I haven't done Motor Goods yet. I think it's going to be way worse than Ducati. There's something going on. In Italy, they need to up their game with after sales and reliability. I really do believe it. I like Italian bikes, but it, these it's, it can't be a coincidence that the two Italian brands get such bad feedback. And then you get the Germans, the Japanese, all get relatively relatively speaking maybe not all but so much better feedback so so much better feedback for reliability for after sales um the us it looks like it's completely over for motor goods the way it is now they are absolutely furious in north america i should say because the canadians are the same in north america they have nothing good to say about motor goodsies apart from the bikes themselves people actually like the bikes themselves and they say they're actually the new ones at least they're fairly reliable but they say the the after sales teams the servicing teams getting parts in it's all a complete disgrace and it's enough to make you have a nervous breakdown Okay, rant over. Right, I can move on to something now. Let's get on to some positive stuff. 
someone mentioned this actually um he said freddie if you're uh you know if you like the motor Guzzi, and obviously i like the the royal enfield he said this rider said this to me really he said you, you need to try a sports to it you need to try a sports to freddie he said they're they're reasonably priced or at least they're reasonably priced when you consider that they're going to hold their value so well they probably won't lose a penny unlimited parts availability including tires it's an old company and retro styling i've owned three sportsters and they are bulletproof the sound is amazing i love the motor goodsy to be clear but the harley davidson 48 is a pretty damn badass bike if you're ever if you were closer wisconsin usa I'd lend you the bike for a month. If you ever want to visit, uh, the office still stands. Um, there we go, etc., etc., etc. Basically, really, if I like the Moto Guzzi V7, which I did like a lot, I really do need to try the Harley Davidson Sportsters. And it's a bike I've said so many times on this podcast. It's a bike I genuinely would love to own. Owners of Sportsters, they really, really like them. They're not fast, but I'm not looking for a fast bike. I know exactly what it's going to be like. I know it's going to be a fairly sluggish bike and I know the handling won't be dynamic and that's not what I'm looking for in a bike. I think sometimes the sports that is, the bike that I've always been looking for. And there was one variant I just wanted to share with you. Okay, if I go into Auto Trader, one variant of the sports, because I know I always talk about sports, so I won't go there in this episode, but there is one variant I want to say and that is the Harley Davidson Sportster. I know, I know, but the Harley Davidson Sportster XR. Now, this is what would you class it as? Like the, the, a flat tracker version of the Sportster 1200 engine. They didn't make this for long at all. I think maybe just two or three years. It was never popular sales wise, but it holds its value extremely well. So, Harley Davidson Sportster XR. And you'll know it because, it, well, it looks, it is like a, a flat tracker. I wouldn't class it as beautiful, but, you know, prices are, for the cheapest one, 2010 model in the UK, you're looking at £8,000, £7,995. So £8,000 is a minimum for a 2010 model. You know, and there are 2008 models. You know, they're going for 10K, the 2008 models. Uh, oh, here we go. I found one for seven and a half K. Seven and a half K for the cheapest. Seven and a half, eight and a half. Yeah, seven and a half to ten K. They're not pretty, but they've got a certain amount of character to, to them. These. Let's have a look. I don't know why I always do this to myself. I always look at the cheapest. Cheapest one I found. Seven and a half K. Two thousand nine Harley Davidson Sportster XR twelve hundred comes with twelve months MOT. It's in black. It's got that classic Harley V twin uh, 1200 engine. It's jacked up with the suspension. It's. I I actually like these. It's it's muscular. It's minimal. It's stripped back. I've heard that the plastic quality is poor from owners, so don't expect the absolute last word in refinement. But I think these have some character, and I think this is a real modern classic. Actually, this. So if you're in the market or just open-minded to 
a slightly different bike that you're almost never going to see. You really aren't. You, you very, very rarely see these around. Have a look at that because you're not going to lose a penny on these. I actually think they're going to start going up in value within the next maybe maybe five years or so. But hold on to it. You're onto a good investment there. Harley Davidson Sportster XR. Right. Oh, this. I get asked this question. It's funny, actually. I get asked this question more than any other question. And it's such a specific question. Freddie, I'm looking to take my motorcycle test. Should I go out, do my, C do my CBT, which is basically just a, a day's training where at the end of the day, basically, it's almost impossible to fail. And you can then ride any 125cc bike that you want. It lasts for two years and it means that you have to keep your learner plates on, you can't have a pillion, but it means that just within one day you can then go out and you've got the freedom of 125cc motorcycle ownership. So the question, should I go out, buy a 125cc bike, effectively train myself up, make sure I'm confident, competent on the road and I understand gear changes, everything like that. And within, you know, after buying that, let's say 125cc Mutt, for example, if I buy that, I can train myself up for two years. And then within those two years or so, I can then look at doing my motorcycle, my proper motorcycle test in my own time, uh, while always training myself up on my own personal motorbike. And it means that I can ride my motorbike immediately. I don't need to worry about waiting for a test and then failing and having to rebook, etc., etc. So here's the trade-off. Do you go out and buy a 125cc motorbike immediately that you can ride around until your heart's content and in that time you're not under a huge amount of time stress and pressure thinking my god I've got to pass my big test and I've got to book it and if I fail I'm bankrupt because I have to rebook a test you know or do you take your time with it like this and I've been almost completely 50 50 with this because if you go out and buy a 125cc scooter let's say if if you go out and buy a 125cc not scooter, but motorbike, like a Mata Held. There are loads of cool brands now that do very good looking Bonneville-esque 125cc bikes. So you can now genuinely have a really cool looking 125 bike. So you go out, you buy it. Let's say you spend three and a half, let's say 3K on a cool looking 125, 3,000 pounds. You get it with a warranty and everything like that if you buy it new. So no issues there. You then learn in your own time to pass your test and if you have to take your test direct access with all the lessons in the uk you're looking at about 750 pounds but if you fail your test in reality you're probably looking at about 150 180 pounds to rent out the bike for the day get the instructor to take you to the test and book the test itself so you're going to be looking at a lot a lot of money if you fail your test i failed my test actually first time and that does put a lot of pressure and stress on it. I remember I was very stressed out because I failed first time and I thought, right, I've got one more chance to pass my test. And if I fail my test again, I honestly don't have another penny left. So it is a stressful thing. So buying the 125cc, it, it does take away some of that because you're still on two wheels. You know, you can still, for example, commute to work or wherever you're going on your own bike. And if you fail, it's still a pain. But 
you know, it doesn't mean you're, you're not on two wheels, you know, you've still got your two wheels there and you can still go out and practice and make sure you're sharp. Uh, and it does take time, it takes time to get used to gear changing or option two, do you, having never ridden before, just book your direct access, which is where you go from never having ridden a bike before to passing your test within one week, which is what I did. I did the direct access. So I went within one week, never having ridden a bike with gears before to, well, I failed first time, but uh, passing my test. I had to take my test, I think, two weeks later when the, the next spot was. So I effectively went within a week from never having ridden to passing my test. But because of COVID and everything, I've heard there are some fairly long lead times to actually book your test now. I've heard some people saying three months because there's such a backlog of all this COVID stuff. That's a long time to wait. That's a bit of a game changer. If you've got to wait three months, I would say, I, I would say you've got to go out and get a 125cc. I would say that's the best option if it's three month lead time to actually get your test. And if you fail, well, you have to wait another two, three months, you know, to rebook your test. That's a huge amount of time. The way motorcycle residuals are now, if you can buy a 125cc bike, you're probably not going to lose too much money on it. And importantly, you won't need the 750 pound direct access course. You can get away with just having the one day effectively renting out the the motorbike and getting the examiner to take you there for the day. So you're probably going to save maybe even 600 pounds or so for the full week's training. So that is a big cost. And I don't think you're gonna lose 600 pounds in depreciation from your 125cc bike. It will probably actually hold its value a bit better than that. So it's very nearly 50-50. So if someone asks me, Freddie, what should I do? Go out and buy a, you know, a Mata Herald, a cool looking 125cc custom bike, or, do I take the risk, go and try and pass my direct access and just get straight on to a Royal Enfield classic, you know, a Royal Enfield Meteor, something like that, something a bit meatier with, uh, with regards to performance and horsepower. And after saying all this stuff, honestly, I'm still 50-50, I really am. If you wanna get on your bike and you need a bike to start commuting on immediately, I'd say probably go for the 125cc. If you can wait a bit longer, and you're comfortable on the road maybe because you've you know you've had your your car license for a few years i'd say probably just go with the direct access but there's no right and wrong they're both brilliant ideas and that's why mutt herald all of these other brands that make these cool looking 125 and 250 cc bikes they should be applauded because i've ridden them they are incredible fun and they're game changing it means you now can finally ride around on a cool 125 cc bike and it's genuinely cool and fun and it's a game changer so you can't go wrong either way right i'm going to get on something completely different for the final bit of today's episode i'm going to shock you and i'm going to talk about two bikes that they're not really anything like the bikes that I'm I'm interested in traditionally they're not but they're two bikes that are interesting because of what they represent both of them were were very much of their era when it was all about you know absolute horsepower you know beasts of bikes um, big engines just absolute Japanese quality refinement power 
continent crushers of bikes and it was all about these headline figures and you had a few of the big players in the game probably most notably the Hayabusa and then I think you've got then probably the Honda CBR 1100XX Super Blackbird and then you've got the Kawasaki ZZR 1100 these are all bikes around about around about the 90s a kind of even early mid going up to late 90s and you can get them at a good price now and the reason I wanted to talk about these because they are they all have Japanese build quality of course because they're Japanese they've all got huge engines absolute refinement and they're at an era they're in an era especially if you go for if you can get one around about the 2000 and onward mark you're probably going to get really really strong reliability as well you know even these japanese bikes from the early 90s mid 90s even i've had them you know still not they they still don't feel absolutely reliable i had a i had a suzuki bandit 2002 model that was still carbs and that was really unreliable actually it was a tank it would always get me from a to b but i'd often have to take the tank off and kind of unpinch wires and get the carbs going by push starting it or some weird stuff that i didn't understand for me carb bikes carbs you know carburetors i don't know I, I never gel with them i will stay well away from carb bikes but but having said all that there are two bikes that interest me because they're about the 2k mark and i'm going to talk about two of them that is the honda cbr 1100xx super blackbird i think my uncle actually had one of these the honda blackbird it came along in 1997 until 2005 mcn motorcycle news rated it at four out of five and listen to this owner's ratings of the honda blackbird 4.8 out of five so what i'm doing here is i want to give all those people who maybe have their budget in fact it's still you know it's not cheap i remember my budget until two years ago is 800 pounds for bikes so it's still you know it's still expensive ish about 2000 2500 two to two and a half k you can get these for and i think they look like a good proposition at that price so the honda blackbird uh, mcn said it's got honda reliability it was the world's fastest production bike when it was launched it had i cannot even believe this it's the first time i've seen this actually 164 horsepower that's huge even today and this bike came out 25 years ago and it had 164 horsepower the owner's reliability rating of the honda blackbird the owner's reliability rating that's the one that i really care about is 4.9 out of 5 let me just click on that if you want reliability there is only one option and that's japanese i don't care if you're a harley guy or a triumph guy it doesn't matter it's all about the japanese if you want absolute reliability and i'm just looking at the owner's reviews now someone said old man's express five out of five honda blackbird still a star five out of five smooth as five out of five best ever bike built by honda five out of five a truly balanced bike with power comfort and design that would still be cutting edge with some updates the best bike ever produced by honda that owner said right what are we looking at 
I'm actually a big fan of these. It may not be exactly my kind of bike styling wise, but I do appreciate it actually. I do for the the machine that it is. Prices come in. I'm not gonna look at a written off one. Mm, uh, no, I won't look at that one because someone's put aftermarket decals. I want a standard one. Okay, standard one from a dealer. £2,395 with just 26,000 miles on the clock. I think that's a really, really good price. 2.3K for a 1998 S-Reg and it's only got 20, 26,000 miles on the clock, which for an 1100cc Honda is absolutely nothing. I'm looking at the front end. It does look very much of its era. Oh, it looks very 1990s, but I like that. I would actually, I would actually consider one of those. I really would. It's, I think that could also be a bit of a future classic. Classic bikes or cars, vehicles, they're classic because of what they represent. And these bikes, these sports tourers, almost, I guess you'd say hyper tourers of their day, these sports tourers of their day, these, the big three, you know, the Hayabusa, the Blackbird and the Kawasaki ZZR 1100. That that was a really that's a big fight between the three of them. You know, these are what would you call them? Um, kind of the pinnacle of all of these different bike brands at the time. Uh, let me quickly tell you about the, the Kawasaki. See what we can get. Kawasaki ZZR 1100. They come in. Oh, it's a 1990 even 1990 models actually for these two and a half k for one of these you need that's 123 horsepower 1100 cc bike and that's the bike that the blackbird knocked off its perch but i could get actually a 1999 kawasaki zzr 1100 okay listen to this this is really interesting this will be my final point of the day but let's see how residuals are right okay i'm looking at a, oh, I tell you what, if you go for a 1990 model, that's £3,000 for a 1990 model, 55,000 miles on the clock. That looks so of its time. That looks so, so retro now. Go for a slightly more modern one with a 1999. You're looking at 27,000 miles. You're looking at £3,000. If I go to the modern equivalent, if I go for the Kawasaki ZZR 1400, the latest edition, you're looking at, so if we compare it to about £3,000, this is so, so interesting. Seriously, so interesting. Okay. It's actually eye-opening. This is eye-opening, right. You, you, the ones I was talking about, the ZZR 1100s, in the UK, they're about £3,000. This just shows how strong residuals for motorbikes are. You know, the, the ones there from 1995-ish, they're £3,000 for 1995 Kawasaki ZZR 1100. You can get one with a 2000, you can get a 2009 ZZR 1400, a 2009 ZZR 1400. So that is, that's a good 14 years newer or something. You can get a 14-year newer bike with, this is the 1400cc bike, 1400cc bike, 14 years newer than the ZZR 1100. It's going to be, it will be better in every way. 
it will be of course it's not getting to the classic level so you lose out on that classic element of it but you're probably in reality getting a better bike and you can get it for three and a half thousand pounds so for just 500 pounds more you can get an admittedly high mileage but what do i always say i love high mileage vehicles and this is my bike for the week actually just stumbled across this we know if i'm doing a bike for the week i'm going to do an even better one 2007 model kawasaki zzr 1400 3200 pounds in silver this bike is just 200 pounds more than the bikes that came out 20 25 years previously so you're only looking at a difference of about 200 pounds between the year of 1990 and 2007 uh, sorry 17 years difference not 27 17 years difference and you only need to pay an extra 200 pounds so let's end it on this kawasaki zzr 1400 54,000 miles on the clock which is nothing for a 1400 and you get this hyper tour of a bike 187 brake horsepower for three thousand pounds it's got 12 months mot that's the annual check that they do it's just past the annual check nice condition all around three keys lots of paperwork receipts braided front brakes yada 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 this comes from a dealer it's got a yada yada tank protector don't care about that it's fine viewing highly recommended Givey top box with rack. You even get a top box. Even comes with a top box. £3,200 for a hyper tourer like that. Oh, that's got to be a good deal for someone. Now, that looks like a modern bike in, from 2007. That's a modern bike. You're not going to have any of those funny reliability issues that you get from the 1990s bikes. Because 1990s bikes, most of them are a bit unreliable, actually, in reality, if they're carbs and etc., etc. I've spent my first five years biking with 1990s Japanese bikes. They're not reliable, in my opinion. That will be very, very different. Right, let's end it there. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Have a brilliant week, everyone, and I'll speak to you in the next one.